And now we come to the thrilling final episode of our radio drama. Old Pete Belden, driver of the Jetney from Carsonburg to Copper Springs, has a double load today. Pete's ancient bus is carrying the Flying Bee payroll and a passenger, his niece Betty. Little do Pete and Betty suspect as they chug over the desert wastelands that just around the next curve, shifty Sam Hicks and his henchmen lie in wait. This just in, supervillain Skull Boy is soaring in his flying fortress, flying through the stratosphere. He is calling all superhero challengers to come and try to save the day. However, as all of us and Skull Boy well know, the governments of the world can no longer afford the vastly inflated prices that superheroes have been able to charge since the third desolation of New York City last summer. Greetings, denizens of Earth. It is I, Dr. Skullboy. As you can see from my vast legions of robot skulls, Earth is doomed unless you send your greatest heroes to combat me. For after all, no mere mortal can face the calcium-enriched Dr. Skullboy. I am the greatest threat the Earth has ever faced. Except maybe that one robot man, or the clown guy. But I'm definitely in the top five. Earth is doomed unless you send your most powerful warriors to face me in deadly battle. Battle! Battle, I say! I await your presence in my flying sky fortress, the flying skull palace of deadly death. It's a work in progress. However, that does not preclude the fact that you are doomed. Doomed! <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to set this recording to loop while I'm busy conquering your pathetic world. Ta-ta now! What will the governments of the world do? Who can save us? Hey Judd, look how many potato chips I can fit in my mouth. Please listen carefully. Welcome to the Nerd's Guide to the Apocalypse. My name is Judd Potter. My name is Max Sexton, and my mouth tastes like... Salt, grease, and regret. <laughs> you found your way back to everybody's favorite movie a week podcast. This week we're going to be talking about our top superhero movies. Before we do that, we're each going to talk about a thing we've been watching, reading, or playing that's got us really wanting to talk about it. So, Mac, what have I been doing? I have, um, I've been re-watching a show. It's been about a year since I watched it last, and I'm revisiting it. Uh, I've been watching One Punch Man. Uh, I've I, I've got a group of friends that have not watched it before and were interested in revisiting it, and I enjoyed it so much. I figured, what the heck? I have a computer. They have an HDMI cable. Let's do this thing. But the the basic pre, uh, pretense of the show is this: there's this guy. It's an anime, right? It's an anime. It's yeah, it's a Japanese thing. animation. Yeah. Uh, on Netflix, on Netflix, it's actually not been dubbed in English. It's only in Japanese, but it's uh, the sub the subtitling and so forth is very good. It's still a wonderful experience. This one guy, Saitama. Um, is he's a businessman who's out of a job, he feels kind of useless, and he decides that he's going to train to be the world's most powerful superhero. Appropriate for today. Good I know, man. I know, right? Three years later, he's trained so hard that all of his hair has fallen out and he can beat anyone in one punch. Wait, how does the hair... Why is the... What logic? It, it's a... It, trust me. The thing runs on bizarro logic. It's like an emotional reality. Yeah, the show, okay. the show has like this weird sense of humor. Because okay. it's a comedy. The, the big conflict of the show, because at the very least, they're the big initial conflict, the, the, as more characters are introduced, the plot deepens. But the emotional heart of the show is Saitama is, like, is facing this ennui, this existential like boredom and frustration, because he's no longer challenged by anything. He can beat uh -huh. anyone in the world with a single punch, and he's just 
bored out of his mind. So this is when you get really tired of Rocky movies, which is like a whole bunch of punches, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how to react. But to he that. loses some of his matches. Like I... anyway, anyway. <laughs> That's a weird thought. One Punch Man is like, it, not only is it a really funny send-up of, like, superheroes, mm-hmm. but if you're at all familiar with the Japanese uh, shonen genre, which is sort of like action-packed stories for, like, young boys kind of thing, mm-hmm. this is a mockery, a parody of all of that. Oh. It's actually very cleverly written, although it occasionally has a somewhat juvenile sense of humor. Um, I can't recommend it enough. It's one of the funniest TV shows I've seen in ages. And I'm not above a fire joke. You think it's you think it's only it's sane enough to do fart jokes? Oh, good. See, that, I that, mean, you're selling it to me. When yeah, you say no, because like it's not just like fart jokes. Like, don't get me wrong. There's some of that, but like it's a lot of really cleverly done slapstick. It's got a great sense of physical comedy as much as anything else. So it makes great use of the animated medium. Cool. Um, there's an instance in the first episode, for example, where um, uh, I'll go ahead and spoil the first three minutes of the opening episode. Oh no. I mean, brace I, yourself. So this um, this guy who looks like Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z has landed on Earth and he's gonna like destroy the world because he's like I am he's got this whole complicated backstory I'm pollution incarnate here to wipe humanity clean <laughs> and free Mother Earth from your from all of this awfulness and Saitama shows up oh yeah what's your story me oh I'm just a guy who wants to be a hero for fun and the pollution guy gets furious you fiend how dare you say that. And it's like becoming more and more grotesque and horrifying. Halfway through the guy's speech, Saitama just punches him and he literally explodes. Nice. <laughs> and Saitama's just standing there. No. No! And he just falls through his he screams into heaven, One punch! No! <laughs> and that sets the tone for the show. It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's, I like that. It's it's incredibly funny. And it's got a it's got a wonderful cast of characters too. Like it it the show knows that it's ridiculous and doesn't shy away from any of the camp and absurdity. That's cool. But uh what have you been working on? Um, I finished uh, a game. Since you're not talking about a game this week, I will. I finished uh, Life is Strange. I've heard good things about Life is Strange. Life is Strange is a kind of an episodic uh game. It's by Square Enix and Don't Nod, but it's um it's 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 sort of like the in the Telltale school of video games, where it's almost like an interactive movie kind of. And I was describing this this, this game to somebody recently, and I described it as kind of like an empathy simulator, where basically the entire gameplay loop, you know, so many games are about running and shooting a thing, often with a gun in your hands and this kinds of thing, these kinds of things. This is it's a, very difficult to shoot things without a gun in your hands. Well, I mean, bows and arrows. Like, it, it, there's always <laughs> some like method of projectile violence for most video games. And in this one, um, the gameplay feedback loop is not aim, shoot, get reward. It's talk, have a conversation, and um, learn something new. And then the gimmick of this game is that, uh, and this is this is something that's apparent. Like if you read the back of the box, uh, you play a girl in high school who has the ability to rewind time. So she has a superpower. You could say so. Yeah. Um, and so it, she's really cool. And so it is. It is a character game. It's a. It's a game about good writing and characters. And uh, basically, um, your character. You're you know having a normal day at school. It's like you know it's high school, so it's not a great day. And you're hiding in the bathroom, and all of a sudden you see these two people walk in. Uh, and a guy's like, you're in the women's restroom, and a guy walks in, and he's yelling at himself in the mirror. He's upset about something. Uh, a, a, a girl follows him in. And starts letting him have it and challenging him, like, calling him out and, you know, you're not really sure about what all this means. You don't have any context. 
and he has a gun in his hand and he shoots her in the bathroom. And so oh. being shocked that this happens, you reach out and you're able to rewind time. Oh. And so the way that they make this mechanic not be so overpowered is you can't rewind yourself once you leave an area. And it's clear it'll be like, do you want to go like outside of the classroom or outside of the hallway or outside of the dormitories? Whenever you make that decision to leave a place, your decisions are permanent. You can't go back that, farther past that. And so within a scene, so when, when you're like hanging out in front of the school on the quad and like talking to people, you can be talking to somebody and you put your foot in your mouth and make a conversational mistake and you can rewind time, not make that mistake. Or if you learn something new about them, you can incorporate that into the conversation the second time around. Hmm. And that's just the beginning of the fun mechanics they have. And uh, the, the mechanics get more complex as you play, and course, as, as Max figures out her powers. But the uh, writing gets better, too. So it starts out as kind of um, like a sort of Twin Peaks, Twilight zone type mystery. Yeah, which um, I'm down for out of the opening gate. That's, right. that, that's up my alley. Right, it sounds great. But then every time it makes a, a kind of a declarative statement and that you kind of like see where it's going, it takes a completely like 90 degree turn. And so it, it, it does a good job of keeping you on your toes as an audience, it's even just with the story. Hmm. And so it does that with both the mechanics and the story. That sounds like a recommendation. Yes, and I've told you all of this stuff, and this is all stuff you'll get in the first hour of the game. And so there are five episodes. If you get, like, a disc, it'll have all of them on there. Right, But But yeah. um, there are five episodes, and they take two and a half, three hours to play. That's, uh, pretty, that, that, that's pretty good for an episodic game, actually. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really into episodic games lately. I, I just yeah. like it because I like TV and movies, so you can't imagine I would like this stuff. I mean, you're the like you're the guy who kind of got me into Telltale games. Yeah, so I'm a Telltale you, you, you and another one of my friends are the people who really got me into it, so. Yeah, so I, uh, this one is like a, um, a, 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 it's like a higher-budget Telltale game. Is how I describe that, it to and that, Sarah. That's yeah. a wild thought because Telltale's like is already comparatively pretty high budget, although they've got some weird engine. I don't actually know either game's budget, so I'm just talking like as an amateur here. But like the the reason I say that is because the episodes are longer. There's more to them, um, and Telltale's engine is you know ancient of days. So well, it was they just updated? They just updated it, but until then it was it was ancient, and even just the the. The graphics of the game, like it's not like they go for a realistic style. They definitely choose an artistic style and stick with it, which is the way to make your game last. By the way, this is not a new game. It came out in 2014. Part of the reason it still works is because they chose that art style. They didn't go for you know photorealistic graphic fidelity, which huh. is something I'm always a fan of. Mm. Is that my phone? Hang on, hang on. Mm. Hi, you've reached the Nerd's Guide to the Apocalypse. Yes. This is Director Angry Muffins, from the Assemblers Initiative. Okay, first, your name is Muffins? And second, what's the Assemblers Initiative? I'm angry because my name is Muffins, son. Oh, that explains a lot. But we're getting far too personal. The safety of the world is at stake. Oh, does this have to do with that whole Dr. Skullboy thing? It does. I think I heard about it on the radio. I switched over to, uh, I switched over to the classic rock station. Well, that's a shame, son, because your your globe needs you. All the nations of the world have called me and gotten me to assemble a new team of assemblers. Judd, what's an assembler? It's like the Avengers, but Marvel doesn't own them. Oh. Why us? Because you're cheap. Well, he's not wrong there. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it, and you will, because you don't have a choice. Okay. 
is to ride up my Falcon Cruiser up into the stratosphere. Falcon Cruiser? <laughs> Come on, man, you just crushed the doghouse! And to take the Falcon Cruiser up to the stratosphere to meet the Flying Skull Palace of Deadly Death in Mortal Kombat for the fate of the free world. Is that really the best name we could come up with? It wasn't my name. It was Skull Boy who named his Flying Death Palace. Says the, says the man named Muffin. That's not my fault. My parents were... Their last name okay, was... Okay, bye now. Man, it's cool in here. Judd, please don't press those buttons. But this one's green. No. Click. Four, three, two. One. Okay, you can calm down. We're only moving four miles an hour. Oh, okay. I mean, we're flying though. It's cool. Four miles an hour. But superheroes. I guess we have some time to talk about that. Well, okay, okay, so let's go through our favorite, our top five list for our superhero movies. So, I've got a number of superhero picks here, but I think I want to start with the with one that I don't think is the best of these movies, but is a film that doesn't get enough, enough love and respect for what it is. Okay. And I'm talking about Peter Berg's 2008 Hancock. I, this was not on my list. Yeah. So, Hancock is a film about uh, this uh, this guy, John Hancock. Um, does by William Smith. Yeah, played by Will Smith, and he doesn't remember much about his past. He's kind of a drunkard, kind of a bum. Nobody really likes him, but he's got, like, Superman levels of powers. Like, he's just this unstoppable force who does copious amounts of property damage anytime he does anything at all. And everyone kind of hates him for it because they just want the police to do their jobs and want this guy to just bugger off so he doesn't keep, you know, destroying everything. Because this is not a world that's filled with superheroes or superheroes or supervillains and the like. He's, it's just this one guy. Well, well, what I'm getting from your from One Punch Man and Hancock is that you like kind of deconstructions of the Superman character. I well, I do. Yeah. I mean, I like I like Superman done earnestly too. However, I like it when people examine like the implications of it. Yeah, and that's yeah, what yeah. this does because John Hancock saves this guy who's involved in PR, and the PR guy decides that he's going to take Hancock on and basically improve the public perception of him. And what begins is basically like he encourages Hancock to go to prison, serve out a sentence. And really try and, like, make a difference in himself as an individual. And what we get is this very interesting character study of what happens if you get someone who's in the Superman position who's not at all prepared to be there. And the film does kind of start falling apart as they actually start fleshing the mythos out. While Will Smith as John Hancock is a very compelling character, there's a number of other people in the film who aren't necessarily. It's easy to see why the film didn't get a great reception. I think it's got like a 47 on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. A lot of people don't like it. But this was one of a whole string of 2008 superhero films, some of which might appear on my list later on. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed the game, that changed how we understand superhero films. And if for no other reason that this was a somewhat more realistic and somewhat sort of cynical postmodern take on superhero narratives, albeit one that definitely had a strain of sincerity to it, yeah, um, I think it deserves some recognition and a little bit of love. Is it one of the best films ever made? No. But I think it's one of the most um, creative uses of superhero films. Yeah, I like doing the giving giving an underappreciated movie its due on the lists. I mean, Roger Ebert liked it. Okay. He gave it like 3 out of 4 stars. Wow. So, I'm with Ebert on this one. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I have not seen it, but I, yeah. I might check it out. Yeah. Uh, 
Fun fact, my mother actually is, like, really into, like, superhero films and this kind of thing. Like, she's a big fan of, like, the Hellboy movies and so forth. So, for one year for her birthday, she's like, I want to watch this. So, I got her the steel book of it. Oh, cool. So That's very cool. We've still got it at home somewhere. Nice. But what about you? What is your first pick for your top five superhero films? My first pick is a superhero film film that... Uh, did I love a, superhero films. films. Superhero film that uh, set the tone for most of the superhero movies that followed it. It is a it is a demarcation point. There are the superhero movies before this one, and there are the superhero movies after this one. And that is 1999, Tim Burton's Batman. Did you mean 1989? That's what I said, isn't it? Nope, you said 1999. Oh, ni- I and I would know, because that's actually my fourth pick. Okay. Or, so or that's one of my picks. I don't 1989, know 1999, Tim Burton's Batman. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. Tim, the, the, that Batman film actually made my list as well. Okay, so we can, we'll can we both chime in, too. Yeah, give you, me points too. you lead. You lead, though. Um, okay, so up, up until this point, what we knew of Batman was what the scattershot versions of him we had in the comics. Uh, and we had Adam West, as far as which, the visual media goes. Which, Adam West was far and away sort of the popular conception of Batman. And he was a, a goofy, well-meaning, almost... He was much closer to Superman than Batman, and then as far as like the current takes on those characters go. Um, he he was all about, like, hope, and don't do drugs, kids, and was yeah. used for PSAs and all this stuff. And it was very campy. It was Fun, so campy. campy. Yeah, kapow. Um, I've got a soft spot for it. Absolutely. No, and I, I think it definitely has its place in pop culture history. Well earned. Um, however, however, Batman 1989 is, uh, uh, it is a fever pitch world. This Gotham doesn't exist within time, uh, because there are, like, kind of, like, these sort of futuristic phones, but everything's also kind of steampunk and Victorian, but also, like, some sort of hellscape Detroit city. A very, um... Very and it's an it's a very good Art Deco hell. Art Deco hell, yeah. And um, it it sets the tone for the uh, animated series and the Arkham games that would follow it. I mean, I think you I think you take Michael Keaton's Batman, and then yeah, that translates directly to the animated series, which translates directly to the Arkham games, which for a lot of people is Batman. Like though that though that three set of three things, um, if you exclude Nolan's take. Which Nolan's take is very realistic. It's like, what if Batman was in the real world? Mm-hmm. And uh, those properties that I've been mentioning are all takes on it. Like, what if Batman exists in his own world? And what does a world that produces Batman look like? Tim Burton changed the game. He did, yeah. For everyone. And so... There but, was no going back. And another point I want to make is you would not have Christopher Nolan's take without Tim Burton. Oh, absolutely not. Because he did apply, if you look at Adam West to uh, Christopher Nolan, there's an element of realism that, even though it's Art Deco hell and all this stuff... There's an element of realism that Tim Burton added to the Batman mythos that was not there before, even in the comics. Um, he, he changed the game for Batman and the Batverse forever, um, including comics. The score, I'm going to say this a few times tonight, but that score is just remarkable and Star Wars levels of like, where it's just like you recognize it the moment you hear it. And to this day, the original 1989 Batman has one of the best film soundtracks in all of cinema. And I would say that that theme is still, to date, the most recognizable Batman theme. Ba-da-ba-da-da. Um, I mean, you got the na 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 Right. But if you ask anybody born after the year 2000, like, which one is more... Like, I think they would recognize Tim Burton's Batman theme before they recognized the 60s. Um... Which, that's just the way pop culture works, you know? Of course. Um, but then you got Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Oh, my word. Like, them opposite each other, Dancing with the Devil in the Pale Moonlight. Like, those are unforgettable performances. I, I still think, to this day, Michael Keaton's the best Bruce Wayne we've ever had on screen. 
I would agree with that. I don't think he's the best Batman, but no. by Joe. The bat suit he's... that doesn't have a movable neck prevents that, I think. Right. He's, he's all stuck, kind of like twitching his whole body. I can't fault him for that. Right, though. that's a costuming thing. Besides, we all know that Con- uh, Conroy, it's Conroy, right? The uh, Kevin Conroy. Yeah, we all know he's the best Batman. He's the best Batman voice, for sure. He's he, he His voice in my head is what I hear when I think of Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the voice for the animated series and the Arkham games. Um, but yeah, so and then you got Jack Nicholson's Joker being possibly my favorite version of the Joker. I know everybody loves Heath Ledger. Oh, see, for me, I actually think Mark Hamill's my favorite. And he's the, again, the counterpart yeah. to Ke- uh, Kevin... Kevin, Kevin Conroy. Not, not Kevin, Kevin James. Con- I almost said Kevin James. <laughs> what would Kevin James Batman look like? I'm the knight. <laughs> Ooh, we're going to keep moving. I don't <laughs> keep... want that mental image. Keep it going. Um, Ooh, ouch. Yeah, that neck wouldn't move either. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, those are my main points for right. Temperance Batman. Um... Anything I missed? Yeah, uh, a couple. Uh, there's a couple of things about it that I think stand out as well. And the first is, and this is not, this will not be the first time it comes up. And you'll notice this is sort of a recurring thing with like my picks, though certainly not the only thing. Um, there was a certain verisimilitude to the world yes. of Gotham. Gotham, for as cartoony as it was, and for me the cartoon, the cartooniness is the sticking point. It's the reason that uh, Tim Burton's take on Batman is so low on my list comparatively. Okay. Uh, it's just above Hancock kind of thing. Okay. Uh, I can't get past some of that camp. However, back in 1989, he rewrote the book. Um, before this point, you were saying, we've, all we have is this very cartoony, very lighthearted Batman. From 1989 on, anyone who tries to do a campy, lighthearted Batman in this way, minus the minus the Lego Batman movie. That, that's its own yeah, thing. Minus yeah. the Lego Batman movie, like, it's never going to do as well. Mm-hmm. Because this just, this changed how we understand the character. For the best, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's uniquely Tim Burton's, too. Because you can mm-hmm. see it, the, the diminishing returns as other directors try to do Tim Burton. Right. I will say, just before we leave this topic, uh, there's a fun honorable mention, one of those films that did not make either one of our lists, and that's um, the second Batman. Yeah. Uh, Batman Returns, I yes. believe. Yeah, um, the Penguin story in that one is—I I love it. It's aged really well with me. Um, it's a film that's also very well deserving of attention. However, it didn't change the game the way that that first Batman film. Right, did. It, it's doing um, what the first one did again, and a lot of times in better ways. Doing it better, but this one was the one that uh, was first through the gate. So that—that's why it's on my list. Okay, all right. So, what is your uh, next pick, Mac? Yeah. Okay. So. Actually, I think that concludes my fourth pick. Oh, so, okay. Because so, that, that was my fourth choice. Okay, okay. So I've spoken a little bit about it, but just for the sake of keeping some symmetry here, how about you give us your fourth choice? Yeah, okay. That way we don't like wind up we being... We get ahead old. of each other, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could just spend hours talking at the rate that this plane seems to be moving. Yeah, no, I think we'd have about a week. Yeah. Yeah. A day per movie. I'm going to start fiddling with these controls, see if I can't get the thing moving faster. Okay. Um, well, while you do yeah. that, I'm going to tell you my next pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, uh, for the record, I only have one movie that takes place on 2008 or afterwards. Oh. Just well, I know I know what that is. Lead to I'm, some excitement. I know, I know exactly what it is already. Um, My next pick is 2004, Brad Bird, The Incredibles. Stop choosing my choices! Did you pick this one too? Oh my god, yes! I, that was that was actually going to be like one of my top contenders. Well, since I led with Batman when we both picked it, you lead yeah, with The Incredibles. Yeah, dadgum. Especially animations, you're waiting. Yeah, yeah no. So you lead us okay, off. Okay, so... Brad Bird is one of the best and like best animated directors in Hollywood right now. Yeah. Like him and like Byron Howard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like they're up there. 
The Incredibles is a love letter to all sorts of things. Not only is it some wonderful animation, I maintain, I think The Incredibles is one of Pixar's best. I would agree. Um, but it's also a love letter to, like, Golden Age um, Golden Age superhero narratives. Uh, it is the best Fantastic Four movie we've ever had. Yeah, it totally is. So you've got that intertext laid over. You've got, like, the art style is drawing not only from, like, 1950s, like, uh, superhero design, but, like, the way they lay out the world, the design of the characters, the color palette, all are highly reminiscent. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the film, in many ways, is about adapting superheroes to a modern, like, modern sensibility. In this Mm -hmm. ways, it's a very um, reflexive film Mm -hmm. because the bulk of the film takes place in the present day, and there's all these elements of that 1950s aesthetic. However, you've got the sleek shine of, like, contemporary cinema because this was in 2004 this is when apple was like apple was sort of like back in its heyday uh we were we were seeing like uh things like mirror's edge come out video game wise this sort of sleek clean aesthetic was in was in vogue mm-hmm. but even more than that the incredible succeeds in one way that i don't think almost any superhero film to date has succeeded we've gotten some pathos and so forth I don't think we've ever had as rich a cast of characters as The Incredibles has given us. Yes, I'm nodding vigorously. Mm-hmm. It's good um, radio. <laughs> yeah, um, I, yeah, and I'll, I can pick up there for a second. Where yeah, I, where I, I do. Wanna... I do actually want to leave. Just like yeah, bookmark something here. Yeah. The Incredibles is actually my number one choice for the best superhero film. Is it really? That was my number one pick. Like I love oh, these wow. other ones as much, but that's my choice because of how it handles characterization. Okay, well. Yes, so, so we'll definitely come so back. So we'll come back. I'll yeah. come back and I can keep talking about it. Yes, and you I will. Mean, yeah. yeah. Um, wow, I didn't know we got your number one. That was you, my number four. That, yeah. Or, yeah, so why don't you talk a little bit about it? I'll come back to The Incredibles at well, some point. Well, you covered it really well. I mean, the only thing I, I would just, I, I would kind of want to clarify what I mentioned about it being the best Fantastic Four movie we've ever had. And that has to do with you talking about the characters and the writing. And it is that we have this family of heroes that, like, their relationships to each other are what basically create the drama, create the tension, create what you hope for them and what you fear for them. It's all in the relationships between these four people. And um, that's that. And then the any sort of villains and stuff, they're kind of bouncing around on the outside. They're almost secondary of importance. Um, but it's easily one of the best Pixar movies. You have a family of superheroes. It is a smart, emotional script. And all of those things together create this uh, uniquely powerful piece of cinema. So that that's that's all I had left. Yeah. I have a lot more actually. Yeah, so yeah. But we'll come back Save to it. it. Yeah, for Just sure. know that The Incredibles is a fantastic movie. So let's give so give us your I third. I need one more. Give okay. us your third. Uh, my next one is 1978 Superman. And in the same way that Batman kind of was a a water uh, uh, a uh, high, uh, a red letter day. Uh, Batman was a the, watershed moment. Watershed moment for superhero films. Superman is the the beginning of that river that leads to the waterfall that is Batman. Absolutely. Um, and so this is a movie that the trailers, the tagline was, you can believe a man can fly when you see this movie. And you could. They sold that effect, and it still holds up to this day. Um, uh, and not quite to the level where, like, Tim Burton's unique art style, the same way I was talking about Life is Strange, um, when you choose an art style, it holds up better than if you go for, like, graphic fidelity. And Superman does go for that graphic fidelity, but I think the idea that you can translate what happens on the pages of a comic book to a motion picture, you couldn't... It was the same argument people made against making Lord of the Rings into a movie. You can't do it. It just... Cinema can't keep up with it. 
And so this is the moment where people that made movies were like, no, we got this. Christopher Reeve is flying. Give us 10 more years. Video games will catch up there eventually. Right, Mark, yeah. Mark my words. Mark my words. Well, Next I, 10 years it'll happen. I hope Rocksteady is making a superhero, a Superman game. Oh, God, that'd be awesome. Right, because they finished the Batman series, you know. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole yeah, other conversation. Wow. okay, anyway. But it, 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 and sort of the same way Batman did, it set the tone and the standard. It was the high watermark for superhero movies, in my opinion, until Tim Burton's Batman. That was the movie that every superhero movie was compared to. Um, and I think just on that merit of loan of being of a high watermark for almost 20 years, or for, um, well, for 21, no, 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 that's math. For It was the high watermark for 11 years for superhero movies. And um, just on that merit alone, it deserves to be on a list. Um, and again, I'm going to say this refrain. That score, though, um, the Superman score, John Williams, is, I, I mean, and I, I can say the same thing I said about Batman, where it's as iconic as Star Wars or Jaws, because it's John Williams. John Williams made the score for this. Um, and that, that's one thing that superhero movies have always done really well, is just these unforgettable scores. And Superman is perhaps one the most unforgettable superhero score. I imagine there are more people that would recognize Superman's score than even Tim Burton's Batman's. Absolutely. And um, John Williams, man. John Williams. One slight flashback. Uh, the Incredibles score is really good. I hope you talk about that later. Michael Giacchino. I, that actually is like that's actually footnotes compared to like stuff I want to okay, talk about. Okay, well, okay, but, but yeah. But so uh, what I'm saying is like all of my movies, I've loved their score. Every one yes. of my movies, the score is like spectacular. I don't always talk about score because usually it's in service to the film, and if it does its job, it's in the background. But with every one of my movies, the score is like a key player. Like, and so that's Superman. Um, you can believe a man can fly, Mac. What's your next pick? So my my number three pick. Um, is uh, just a little. It's a little indie film uh, by John Favreau. Came out in two thousand eight. <laughs> it's called Iron Man. The Iron Man. The Iron Man. Yes. Does whatever an Iron Man can. Spins a web. No, he can't. He's made of iron. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. So continuing my trend of two thousand eight films that changed the game. Like two thousand eight was like this is where superhero films changed forever. I think every movie we've picked so far, we're like, this is where it changed. changed. Well, see, like, 2008, like, three films come out that redefine superhero films. So yeah. Hancock comes out and is like, let's talk, like, let's have a realistic portrayal of, like, the psyche of a superhero. Mm -hmm. Iron Man comes out and is like, okay, that's fine. Let's redefine what, is, what a superhero blockbuster looks like. Right. So, for one thing, we don't get your, su your standard superhero character. Usually, like, there's some, um, the Spider-Man thing where it's like... Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Or Batman wants to prevent like his parents um, from happening to anyone else. Or Superman's like it's the great noble thing to do. Like it, I'm doing it because it is right. Um, Iron Man, we have a we have a we have a jerk. He does it because it's cool. He, he doesn't. He doesn't. He like at first he doesn't because like there's still there's some noble motivation of like I want to make the world a better place to live in. But what an asshole! Mm -hmm. This guy's a jerk. Uh, Robert Downey Jr owns the character and it finds the perfect balance between realism and comic book camp but the reason it's my number three pick isn't just because it's a good film because i think that when iron man came out like it was one of the more intellectually engaging superhero films out there mm -hmm. um it was it was very cleverly written it was very engaging um it it, it brought some significant talent and effort to the thing but 
where Iron Man succeeded is two regards. One, it did away with the secret identity. I'm so glad it did that. Secret identity is just, at this point, it's contrived fluff to create conflict. Right. Um, we've seen it done a hundred times, and what Iron Man demonstrated is you don't need a secret identity to have interesting conflict in characters. And that character certainly didn't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and most, uh, and like the vast majority of Marvel films that came after, right? no secret identities. It's like it, the conflict comes from the characters and their interactions. But where it really succeeds, the reason I think it deserves mention so high, is because here we are, almost ten years later. What a superhero film in what a superhero film is, the way we think of it, has changed forever. And it, this basically was one of those films that popularized serialization in cinema. It was the first episode in the great Marvel TV series. It was. Yeah. It was. And you and like you can say that jokingly, but it's kind of true. Iron Man didn't just change superhero films. Iron Man changed. Hollywood. That it did. Um, there was no coming. There was no. There was no going back from this. After this, we get the DC universe, which, for better or worse, blah. Uh, we get the. Um, oh, we get the. We get the Star Wars reboot. We see, um, which I quite enjoy. We see the Hobbit films, which take that as you will. For better or ill, um, Iron Man as an examination of. Um, an examination of Hollywood and the way we think about superhero films, it changed the game. And now, here we are almost ten years later, we're getting our third Thor movie. It's like, what, like the sixth movie with Thor in it? Mm -hmm. uh, we've got so many Captain America, so many Iron Mans. We're, we've, we're seeing our second Spider-Man reboot. Yeah, and and it, we've beat around this, but like it did set the formula for those Marvel movies. Like It is the template that they build all of those off of. Absolutely. To the point where some people claim that Doctor Strange was just Iron Man again. Mm -hmm. So, for being the first, for being the trendsetter, I think Iron Man. Uh, and again, it's a good, it's a good movie on its own merit. But I think looking at it from a meta cinematic perspective, I think it deserves recognition. A solid pick. Absolutely. So that's my third choice. My second to last choice is a second movie in a series. It is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man oh, 2. Ah, yes. And it's yeah. a wonderful PlayStation 2 tie-in. It's so good. It's so good. You could click the right bumper and left bumper, and that was swinging with your right arm and left arm. That was oh, such a good game. Um, but game aside, I think, yeah. that's, I think that's a very good choice, actually. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, just short. Uh, it does kind of the way that Batman Returns did everything Batman did, but maybe sometimes better, but also sometimes worse. This one actually just builds on that first movie. The flaws of the first film are completely fixed in the second in the second film. Um, just in short, it is a superhero Shakespearean drama. Uh, it is Shakespeare in tights. You have flaws in everyone. Everyone has a tragic, fatal flaw in this movie. It is a Greek tragedy. Uh, you have star-crossed lovers. You have betrayal. You have doomed friendships. You have uh, Icarus levels of hubris. And you see all of these elements in almost every character. Through a Sam Raimi lens of humor. Through a Sam Raimi lens of humor. It's so good. It is so good. It's, it really is. The iconic shots that you'll remember, you remember Spider-Man standing in front of a, of, a, of, a, of a train car, like shooting out webs to the side and holding it back with his body and his feet like going into the thing, his mask is flying off. You remember the moment you were just talking about how great it is when uh, Tony Stark doesn't have to wear a mask. When his mask comes off, everyone sees Peter Parker... Of course, they don't know him because nobody knows Peter Parker, and they just realize he's just a New Yorker. 
just like them, and he becomes one of them, and that's that train scene. That train scene right there is worth an Oscar. Like, that should have won something. I was going to say, that kind of set the trend of, like, Chris, like the Christ imagery. and like Right, but beyond that, it's like he... Uh, yeah, I mean, but I mean, it, it does it which, well. Which I say, yeah. like, is, like, of course, is where it came from. However, it, it, it does is really very well. well done. And so it's it's this moment where he looks at the people and they look at him, and it's two and a half, uh, a movie and a half of build-up, like, what's going to happen when they see who he is underneath the mask? If they saw Peter Parker, and they help him up, they give him his mask back, and they're like, go get him. And he goes after Doc Ock. You, you remember Doc Ock's, like, spine thing going into his back? Gosh, Alfred Molina. I don't think the film would have worked without Alfred Molina. Shakespearean, classically trained actor. You can I, see him really? in a bunch of Shakespeare adaptations. I, did, I didn't know that. Yes, and so... It, it just this is this loop of like this is a Shakespeare movie, and most importantly, we have J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. The perfect casting. Still, I dare you to give me a better casting in a you, superhero you movie. You can't. You can't. Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, maybe. I yeah. would. I would argue that. But uh, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson is that is that is casting from on high. Um, it doesn't really get better than that. And I don't there. I, I might have less to say, but but it's because it's such a good movie. It, it, every character has all these Shakespearean qualities. The plot is um, Shakespearean in and of itself. Can I say Shakespearean one more time? But uh, <laughs> Sure, go for it. Shakespearean. It, I can't recommend Spider-Man 2 enough if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a long time. Um, and you really don't even have to have seen Spider-Man 1 to see it and appreciate no, it. No, no. You can, in fact, I'd actually probably encourage you, like... You can minus Willem Dafoe in the first one. You can probably skip the first movie in most like most entirety kind of thing. Yeah, and I I still contend that Tobey Maguire is the best Peter Parker we've ever had. I would say that Andrew Garfield's a better quippy Spider-Man, but Andrew Garfield's way too cool to be Peter Parker. I do like the new Spider-Man in the. Uh, yeah, I mean Tom Holland. Nobody's seen him in anything but Civil War yet. So. Right. I'm I'm very curious. Dating I'm gonna, ourselves. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off on like yeah. judging because I really like what I've seen of that. Well, where we sit now. He's my favorite Peter Parker. That's that's because he's geeky. He's like a grad student. He's uh, going to uh, like work with one of his heroes who's basically trying to create the sun. I, this is why I brought yeah. up Icarus. You know, I think I think actually like this is the film like the first film would kind of fumble Peter Parker. I think the second film got him right. And I think this is one of the first superhero movies that actually deals in these great dramatic, almost literary with a capital L themes with a capital T. Funny you should mention that. Because that takes me into not my number two pick. Okay, well, that, I'm pretty much done, so yeah. let's go right into it. My number two pick is a film that I think I'd have to hand in my cinephile card if I didn't mention it. Themes with a capital T, I hear it coming. Um, my, um... Do you want me to say themes? No, 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 I'm just saying there are themes in this movie. I know what movie it is. Yeah. Um, it's a very dark film. It's a 2008 film directed by Christopher Nolan, a director who holds a very special place in my heart. Uh, this is The Dark Knight. Yes. Uh, we touched on this a little bit when we talked about Heath Ledger's... Heath Ledger's... Heath Ledger. <laughs> Heath Ledger. <laughs> Heath Ledger's terrifying performance as the Joker. Yeah, he, that, that's the movie that got us where we are right now. Yeah. And this was the film that... Because before this point, we do have a lot of superhero films that are that are very good, very engaging... But nothing that anyone would really consider to be high art if you believe that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. That's another podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have long and angry rants about that. But for the most part, it was sort of like, ah, they're superhero films, whatever. The Dark Knight broke the Dark Knight broke the mold there. And while my other films are like cinematic trendsetters, I don't think The Dark Knight is that. Mm-hmm. I think The Dark Knight... I think that told you a lot about Christopher Nolan's career, but I don't think it really changed superhero films for the whole. However... 
as a standalone work of cinema. I think it is one of the best superhero films out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has such a complexity of character. It has such a philosophic depth to the thing. It, that's that's the Nolan touch right there. Yeah, because the whole thing is this exploration of like, what is the what is like, how much are you willing to sacrifice for your safety, in terms of like like security and other people? Because we have this perfect anarchist, chaotic, gnostic, evil figure in the Joker, and then we have Batman. But the catch there is he's starting to violate ethical norms and trying to uphold the society that's being threatened. To quote Tolkien, those who would protect the law against rebellion must not they themselves rebel. And that's the question it asks of Batman. And it's the sort of thing, because the question is, it comes back to the whole thing, are you willing to like be, let yourself become part of a totalitarian society if it means you can be saved from these Gnostic evil figures. In, in Beowulf, in ancient mm-hmm. ancient old English text, the idea of Aglaka. You yeah. Know, you have to fight a monster, you have to become the monster. Right. And that's the Batman-Joker thing in spades. And so when uh, when they're facing off against each other, it, it, we see how bad the Joker can get, but the Joker doesn't stand to lose anything. He's doing what he does naturally. Batman becomes a tricky matter, and this, the final sacrifice, the, the ending to the film, I think, is what ties it together. Because the the Dark Knight doesn't really have a happy ending. No, it doesn't. It's 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 a tragic film. And of the films we've talked about, speaking of Shakespearean superhero films, I think we're looking at a Shakespearean tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's only one way that Bruce Wayne can save Gotham, and the only way for him to do that is to become uh, become the bad guy. Mm-hmm. For him to throw away everything that he's built on an individual level, if it means upholding the law, so he'll even even his closest allies like uh, Lucius Fox wind up kind of being like alarmed and a little bit disgusted right. uh, when we discover the fact that Batman's using um, cell phones to like radar like that 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 idea holds up really well today. Yeah, so it's a very mature film. It's a miracle it didn't get an R rating. Yeah, uh, so it's a very mature film. It's a very thought-provoking film while still being a fun, action-packed uh, romp. And I guarantee on your first watching of it, you're hard-pressed to find a more um, exhausting, tense, and dramatic superhero film out there. I don't think you can do better than this. Um, because the film is so wildly unpredictable. Um, do I think it's the best superhero film as we've established? No. For me, I think that's The Incredibles. But I think The Dark Knight is... Right up there, it's a number two spot. I, I applaud that choice. Yeah, it's it, I like I liked having I did, we didn't plan this, but having Spider Man two and the Dark Knight back to back because four years before I mean that's that's superhero movies going kind of theatrical and Shakespearean yeah. in their themes, and this is where we we take that and we take it to a philosophical level, right? Which we, cool. which is always where it needed to go, and this is where it did. Yeah, uh, and I think there's a lot of super. I think that most superhero films today still don't go where the Dark Knight went. No. Um, I think is absolutely deserving of the attention. I think Christopher Nolan's eye for detail, his approach to realism, and his dedication to this illusion, this Gotham that he's built, um, is, inc- is it's all super impressive. Yeah, I agree. Well, Mac, I know we haven't gotten to our number ones yet, but we're getting really close to that ship. You hear how loud he is now? Yeah. I got a crazy idea. I got a crazy idea. Okay, what is it? What, so, we don't really have a plan to fight this guy. Nah. We've been sent up to fight a supervillain. I mean, I was just going to probably, like, slash his car tires and, like, run away giggling. He doesn't have a car. He's in a flying ship. Well, that's going to make slashing his tires real Yeah, difficult. so what do we do? <laughs> um, listen, 
this worked really well with Clovis. Oh, it did, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because Clovis was a cool guy. How about we go up there? Because we're just to our number ones, yeah. And we prevent this apocalypse. Okay. By having by maybe appealing to his inner humanity and getting him to pick a pick a film. He has a skull face. Well, don't we all have skull faces deep down below the skin and the I'm muscle? looking I'm looking into the middle distance introspectively. Radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well So let, let's let's do our best. Dr. Skullboy, I've come to bargain. Meah! Who is that? Uh, it's Judd. Who the hell is Judd? Uh, and who is you? Who are you? <laughs> well, we're two of my, our my, mightiest heroes. My name is Mac. Um, I draw pictures and cry myself to sleep sometimes. And I'm just Judd. We're two of Earth's mightiest yeah. heroes. What? No, you're not. Look at you. Can you even lift a car? No, but we're two of Earth's mightiest heroes that Earth can afford. You mean to tell me that the Earth cheaped out? Well, you came at a bad time. You came during a recession, man. What's that have to do with anything? Everything. Nothing's yeah. free. Superheroes aren't free. Oh, uh, look, um, Dr. Skullboy, what do you want, peon? Uh, we, um, we, we actually have something we want to share with you. And what's that? Uh, we'd like to talk to you about our two, uh, favorite superhero films we'd like to let you choose. You choose which one's best between the two of us. What? Just give it a shot. You might like it. What? Anyway, so my number one pick for a superhero film is, as we've already established, Brad Bird's 2004 The Incredibles. Here we go. And for me, it's this wonderful palimpsest, to use a to use that 20-cent word. Um, it's, it's a wonderful exploration of superhero films. It's a celebration of them. But where, again, where it succeeds for me is that you could strip it of all of its superhero qualities. You could do that. And you still have a very interesting family drama. But by layering on top all this uh, t narrative about superheroes, it's an exploration of what a superhero narrative is. Absolutely. And in many ways, it's an examination of what the films, like what superhero uh, narratives were back in the 50s, heck, even back in like the resurgence in the 70s. Um, examination of what they were. And it's looking at what they need to be like in 2004. What do they need to be going forward? Um, so we, so the, we have, we have the death of all of these heroes, these heroes that are being killed off by this machine, by this corporate industrial thing. Maybe that's Hollywood that we're looking at there. Maybe that's sort of, maybe that's anticipating the fact that superhero stories need to change. And we see that they do, and they do by celebrating their roots, but also becoming something new by taking on a new design, a new appearance. Mm -hmm. Um... Where one of the places where the, it really succeeds is it makes the most of its animated medium. You couldn't do The Incredibles in any other medium. The exaggerated art design, for one thing, but even on top of that, some of the physical stunts that we see, some of the um, sequences edited throughout, and some of the and the use of um, uh, stretch and fold animation. Yeah. Uh, it would not translate to a non-animated medium. The Incredibles had to be told this one way. You mentioned earlier that I should mention the soundtrack by Michael... Um, Giacchino, Giacchino, I'm not sure how to say G it. Uh, no, nor am I, Michael Giacchino, who, who has done other wonderful soundtracks, but The Incredibles is one of his best. It's, it's both a dramatic orchestral score of contemporary Hollywood while still looking back at, like, uh, action, like action music of yesteryear mm -hmm. and all of these jazz elements overlaid on top of it. Um, the Incredibles is a masterclass in how to do... 
an intelligent and funny um, animated film. And the fact that it's doing that as a superhero narrative on top of that and examining what that means, it's a hyper-dense text. It might not be the most adult, although it is definitely dealing with some adult subject matter. However, you're hard-pressed to find a more thought-provoking and more sincere and heartfelt narrative in spite of its sarcastic and occasionally postmodern treatment of superhero narratives. I like it. So, for my for me, my pick is The Incredibles. And you mentioned how superhero movies as we've gotten more and more of them need to evolve, take on new skin, develop new ideas or take on the genre from different ways, different perspectives. And no movie does that better than Logan. Yeah. Logan? Who's Logan? What are you talking about? That's not a superhero name. I knew this was coming. I think Logan, which came out recently, is the best superhero movie of all time, and I'm about to tell you why. So, I know Logan just came out, so I'm going to keep the spoilers out. Um, yes, and I haven't seen it yet. Right, so, so I'm going to sell you Logan, yes. knowing that you haven't seen it. Yeah. My, my pitch of the movie, my reasons whether, for it. Whether or not I go in for Logan rests solely on your pitch, Mr. Potter. Right, I know. And so what's going to happen is we've got... Uh, I'm going to pitch you on a movie you haven't seen with no spoilers, and I'm going to tell you why it's the best superhero movie of all time on top of that. Okay, here we go. So, Logan, if you've seen the trailer, you realize they use uh, Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt uh, to, to set the tone and the pace for the trailer. It sets the tone and the pace for the movie. This is a Johnny Cash song put to film. Ooh. This is uh, the capstone to Hugh Jackman's nearly 20-year performance as Wolverine. Why? God, how, when did he, yeah. when did he first play Wolverine? Uh, 2000. So seven, yeah. this is the capstone to his 17-year performance. Over a decade and a half of playing this one guy. Right, and you know, it, that there's a lot of emotional reality to this Wolverine. Um, it pays to have seen some of those movies, not all of them, not even any of them if you don't want to. But, um... It knows its place within the legacy of superhero films, just like um, Superman, just like Batman. I think this is another one of those before this movie and after this movie moments. It has an R rating. Um, one of two R-rated superhero films in recent memory. Yes, both this, from this Fox Deadpool. and the X-Men. Yeah. But Deadpool is its own thing. Deadpool's always been on the fringes of the superhero world. Absolutely. Wolverine has always been the superhero world. He's one of that Marvel's hardest-working characters. He's in almost everybody's book. Absolutely. Um but as far as this movie goes, it is raw, it is violent, it's profane, and it's human, and it's beautiful. Because this is an old guy. It, if you've read the Old Man Logan arc, they, they draw a lot of inspiration from that. But it's a, it's a guy who's he's been through the ringer, he's tired, and he just wants to be left alone. But of course, the, just when he thinks he's out, they pull him back in. Uh, as these things go. Um, and it is a study of a traumatic and traumatizing life. We've talked about, like, how groundbreaking superhero movies analyzed the reality of superhero movies of the past in ways that those movies were not like self-aware enough to do. And this movie is so self-aware. It's aware of how traumatic it would be to uh, outlive all of your loved ones and to uh, your, your method of fighting people is to literally stab them with your fists. I mean, that intimacy of murder is explored in this movie in a very gruesome way, and you get the, the toll it's pa- played on Wolverine. Um, on Logan, um, and it is... Um, and the fact that it's even called Logan implies that it is a more personal narrative. Exactly, and that's what I'm about to get to. And it's, So it's a movie about the reality of being the Wolverine, but what you actually find as you watch this movie, it's about Logan versus the Wolverine. It's about him versus his past, and that takes on um, 
some uh, literal lairs occasionally within this movie. And so I, I don't want to spoil anything. I could say a lot more right here that I'm not going to, but that, that contribute once you've seen the movie. Um, there are characters that come in, they get him back involved in superheroing. Reluctantly, I know Doctor uh, Professor Xavier. Charles Doctor Professor Xavier. Doctor Charles is in here. Yeah, and um, some other characters that are that are uh, are new to at least Fox's cinematic universe. Um, but so I, I, instead of going into that stuff, I'm going to go into the kind of philosophical questions and the questions it asks of its audience and uh, and of itself and it answers these questions. I, I, the, a good movie answers the questions it asks itself. And Logan asks, who are we? Are we able to become the people we aspire to be, or are we doomed to remain trapped within our own fatal flaws and limitations? Are we never becoming the people we think we can be or that we should be? Are we trapped by our own failures and flaws? Um, and so Logan's quest for personal salvation and absolution in the face of mortality, it mirrors the quest that all of us are on that in every day of life. I mean, that's why this kind of narrative sticks. Um, and it's not just a movie for our time, it is a movie for all time, I say. Because it's not just about the personal journey of a superhuman, but that of the human condition. Damn. Well, I already wanted to watch this, but man, you didn't have to drop that on me. <laughs> so, um... Okay, so... So... Uh, it, it, it should be noted, hold on, supervillain... Um, it should be noted, Mac, you did not step into the cinema snare this week. For the first no, time, it has yeah. not been activated. I'm, I'm actually rather surprised. I thought I was going to. So what was this week's cinema the snare? The cinema snare was the word benevolent. And so I made it a little challenging. Like, it could have been easy. It could have said, you know, a benevolent vigilante. Like, I figured benevolent would come up somewhere in the philosophical world of The Dark Knight. And I knew you were doing The Dark Knight. Yes. So that was my thought. But uh, it did not catch you. But so next week, the cinema snare is yours to set. Very well. Very well, sir. So, um, Dr. Skullboy, which do you want to pick? What? What? You came up here to talk about movies? You filthy peons? Is that the best you can do? What a shameful display. What, what did you think we were coming up here for? To fight me! With what? We don't have powers. And you're all that your puny Earth governments can send to face me? What is this? Wait, what is the world careful. coming Dr. to? Dr. Skullboy, you're backing up toward that large red button. I I Dr. shall Skullboy, crush be careful. your pitiful world beneath my bony fist as I, Dr. Skullboy! You're backing up to the butt. Oh, damn. Oh, you hit the button. Warning, self-destruct system initiated. You fiends, you've beaten me this day. I'm going to leave, but I'll return, mark my words. The ship will self-destruct in T-minus 30 seconds. <laughs> Very well, I shall return. Come with me, minions. <laughs> Well, that seems kind of anticlimactic. Well, it does explain the Minions franchise, though. Ooh, I'm not going to think about the subtext of that. Let's get back on the jet. All right. The ship will self-destruct in T-minus five, four, three, two, one. Have a nice day. Thank you for flying United Airlines, the supervillain's airline of choice. Oh, that was, um, that was something. He didn't pick our top, though. Like, I, I mean, I know we saved the world, but like, how do we decide which I, I, argument was better? I bet he didn't even think that... Um, I don't think he was even listening. I don't think he was listening. I don't think he likes movies. <laughs> what a weirdo. Hey, uh, do you know if there's any chips around here? Well, we need to... Uh, we'll find some chips in a second, but we need to pick which, which movie is the best superhero movie of all time. Well, how about we let the universe pick, and it'll play the trailer, and we'll come back, and it'll end like that, and then we'll know. That's perfect. Logan, 
mutants. They're gone now. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain. The only thing that's real. You dialed. You are someone to come along. Someone has come along. I am still right here. I would find a way. Logan, you still have time. I guess the answer is Logan. I guess that's. I guess that wraps that up. Thanks, universe. Um, yeah. So uh, as we um, have, uh, you know, prevented the apocalypse yet again, and um, we're currently flying away from this um, destroying airbase. It's that's... still exploding. It, can matter explode for that long? I, I don't know. It's going to take a long time to clean that up. Good heavens. At least it's flying away from Earth. It's somebody else's problem. Yeah. I'm sure that won't have any damaging repercussions. Nah, I think we'll be fine. Anyway, so um, thank you for listening. I'm Judd Potter. And I'm Max Sexton. Our theme music is Ad And by Broke for Free. You can tweet us on Twitter at Nerds Apocalypse. You can follow us on Tumblr as well. If you want to keep up with all our episodes as they come out, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or really any podcasting service of your choice. And if you'd like to recommend future movies for us to watch or join the conversation tell us what movies we missed, follow us on the socials. Uh, and if you enjoyed the uh, show, leave us a rating on a rating and review on iTunes. That really helps us grow and improve the show. And since my movie won, since Logan won, it's my responsibility to name the topic for the next show. And so next week's topic, taking inspiration from Logan, from specifically Hugh Jackman's character-defining performance as Wolverine slash Logan, uh, we're going to do the, t- the top five actor-defined characters, the characters you can't imagine being played by anyone else who the character doesn't just come from the writing, doesn't just come from the costume and makeup. That actor is what defines that character uniquely. Yeah, so um, tune in next week when we do the top five actor-defined characters. I wish I could play the slide whistle. <laughs>